Then the last verses of Noah, which was last week's parsha, we actually read the genealogy of Noah through his son Shem. And so prior to Abram, the final descendant of Shem was Terah, or Terah. He lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, as we read. But then he leaves from there and takes his son, his daughter-in-law, Sarai, and his grandson, Lot, and they settle in Haran. And that's where Terah's life came to a close at the ripe young age of 205. So this week we pick up, after this all settled out and Terah said, I'm going to get my family and move over here. This week, it starts off with the Lord saying to Abram in Genesis 12.1, Lech lecha. Lech comes from the verb that means to go. While lecha is a prep, has a preposition on there that imposed upon it that means to or toward or for or even belongs to. So Lech Lecha has been translated many ways. Whatever version you have, some of them say, get thee out. Some say, you shall surely go. Some say, go forth. And go forth to you or go forth for you. Or as the Tree of Life version puts it, get going. Or Or according to the Gospel, according to... Me, get a move on. And in the fifth verse of Genesis 12, it says that Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions that they had acquired, and the people that they acquired in Haran, and they left to go to the land of Canaan. And they entered the land of Canaan. Once God called Abram in verse 1 to go out or to get moving or to get going, whichever way you want to translate it, we see in the next verses, Genesis 12, 2 through 3, what's oftentimes referred to as the sevenfold promises that the Lord gave to Abraham. First he said, I will make, him, make Abram a great nation. Second, he said he would bless Abram. Third, he said, I will make Abram's name great. Fourth, he said, I will make Abram a blessing. Fifth, he said, I will bless those that bless Abram. On the other side of the coin, number six, he said, I will curse those who curse Abram. And then finally, number seven, he said, in Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What is all? It's all. It's everyone. So God promised unconditionally to bless Abram and his descendants. That's one reason why we can claim the promises of Abram, because we claim to be sons of Abram through our adoption into the family. So through Abram, which means exalted father, who would later become Abraham, which means father of many, or some translations say father of multitudes, God will ultimately establish his covenant. Now, even though God had already established a covenant with 
Adam that represented a covenant with all mankind. And he also established one with Noah. Again, that was a covenant with all mankind. God is now singling out a specific individual. And he's going to make a covenant with that man. And all the generations to follow him. And it was in order to establish a specific nation that he has chosen to reveal his goodness through to all mankind. That nation, of course, would come through Sarai. Even though, right in the midst of the genealogies that I just spoke of from Noah, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, we see that she is Akarah, usually translated barren. We talked about it before. It actually means sterile. So she was incapable of producing offspring. So how is this going to be possible? With God, all things are possible. Not to mention that when the child is, is conceived, she's going to be well past normal childbearing years. So that brings up a couple questions I have. Number one is, is Abraham an important person to the Jewish people? Of course he is. He's actually referred to in some translations as Abraham Avinu, Abraham our father. Rav Shaul says that in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, according to the New King James. Second question, is Abraham important to the Gentiles? Absolutely. Rav Shaul, once again, in Romans chapter 4, in verse 17, described Abraham as a father of many nations, which is exactly what his name means, father of many. So depending on the version of the scriptures that you have when you read, Abraham is mentioned close to 70 times in the Brit Hadashah alone. So I think he's kind of an important person to know about. In Genesis 12, 12, verse 5, Abraham, Sarah, and Lot enter the land of Canaan. And then in verse 7, God tells Abraham, I will give you this land to your seed. So it's right here that God promises the land of Canaan to Abraham. Now we know from past studies it took quite a while before they took claim to it. But it was promised. Then in verse 12 of chapter, or verse 10 of chapter 12, there became a famine in the land. So as a result, Abraham takes his family, guess where? To Egypt. Now we know the story. While we were in Egypt, he devised this plan. You tell Pharaoh you're my sister, not my wife. In the, as a, in the process, because of this, he becomes very wealthy. Since Pharaoh, believing that Sarah was his sister, he gives him, in verse 16, sheep, cattle, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. Of course, then Pharaoh finds out of this, about this deception. He doesn't take anything back. But what he does do... Here's that word again. He tells him, Lech. This time it's probably best translated to say, Get out of here. Go away. 
So what they do? They go back to Canaan. And when they get back to Canaan, they find an argument between Lot's shepherds and Abraham's shepherds. Remember, the families went down, but they left their flocks that were in Canaan, and they left their shepherds there to tend to the flocks. Well, they're arguing now about where they're going to graze. Quite frankly, the place is already big enough. Why do they have to argue about it? Just let them graze together. But that's not how it worked out. They got in this big fight. So Abraham says, okay, I'll settle this right now. Let's divide the land. And he gives Lot first choice. Lot had the opportunity to take the best parcel of land possible. So he settled near Sodom. So after this, in chapter 13, verses 14 to 15, we read that Adonai had said to Abram, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are to the north, south, east, and west. For all the land that you are looking at, I will give to you and your seed forever. Now, I'm not certain of the topography there, but he had to have a pretty good view for quite a distance in every direction. There was a lot of land that he could actually see with his eyes. But we also know that because of the size of the land, he actually didn't see all of it, but he saw a pretty good chunk of it. But then, coming along, we come up and we encounter what has been described as the first civil war. That's where the kings came against each other, and they end up taking Lot captive. One of the groups did. And of course, Uncle Abraham comes to the rescue. He takes the servants, he defeats the kings, rescues his nephew. So when he returns to Canaan, we read that he's met by Melchizedek, king of Salem, who blesses him. Now, Melchizedek is referred to in Genesis 14:18 as a priest of El Elyon, or the priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. According to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17, in referring to Yeshua, it says, You are a Kohen forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, that makes Yeshua able to serve as our high priest. He is able to offer himself as our atonement because of this priesthood of Melchizedek. But in Genesis 14, 19 through 20, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who gave over your enemies into your hand. Every time there was a conflict or battle of any kind, they seemed to know that the credit went back to God, that they weren't responsible for what just happened. They were just instruments, much like we are. Now, at the end of verse 20, here's my very short blurb on tithing. It says, Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is actually the first time we read about the tithe, or a tenth, or the concept of the tithe in Scripture. Even though Cain, Abel, Noah, 
all gave off, brought offerings of sacrifice to God, there was nothing mentioned about a tenth. There was nothing mentioned about a tithe that was given back to the Lord that acknowledged that he's the source of all blessing. I would say this. If you're not already doing it, I would encourage you to seek the Lord as to how you might begin to incorporate the concept of giving at least a tenth back to him out of everything he's blessed you with. It's an act of faith, granted. And even though it certainly provides needed funds for ministries like ours, more importantly is what it can do for the giver. So moving on, in Genesis 15, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram in a vision, Do not fear. Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. The next verse, Abram responded by saying, My Lord Adonai, what will you give me, since I am living without children, and the heir of my household is Eliezer of Damascus? So now... He's concerned that everything he has, everything he has accumulated, is going to go to an outsider instead of his own child. But although he has these doubts and these concerns, verse 6 tells us, Then he believed in Adonai, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. As Messianic Jews and Gentiles we should understand that nothing we can do can earn us salvation. Not our works, not keeping the Torah, not observing kosher laws, nothing in our own abilities will produce righteousness. We're incapable of it. Only Messiah's sacrifice in our place can result in being seen righteous before God. Rav Shaul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made the one who knew no sin to become a sin offering on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that tells me that there is no righteousness in me except through Yeshua's sacrificial death and my accepting him as my Messiah. That's the same thing that happened to the Israelites when they brought their sacrifices to the tabernacle. When they offered an animal as a sin offering, there was this symbolic, you could even say supernatural change that took place based on God's grace and his mercy. The sins of the people was transferred to the animal. And now it would suffer the consequence for their sins, which of course was death. That's why the animal had to be spotless. The animal had to be blameless. In other words, righteous in and of itself. It would become the sin for the one who had sinned. Because they were acknowledging their sin and because of their trust in God, that that system actually worked, their sacrifice resulted in forgiveness of sin. Did the killing of that animal bring forgiveness of sin? Bring righteousness upon the giver? 
I think we would all agree that the answer is no. But it was by their faith that they made the sacrifice because God said that this was the penalty or the cost for forgiveness of sin. So that there had to be a death, either of the animal or of the sinner himself. So they accepted that mercy that God offered. They accepted the grace that he was extending when they made those sacrifices. So it's not about us doing good works in order to obtain righteousness. We can't do that anyway. No matter what we think, no matter how hard we try, we're not capable of doing it. It's about the change that occurs when we accept the sacrifice of Messiah Yeshua in our place. See, don't we, we don't keep Torah because we have to, but because we want to, in order to demonstrate our love for God, our Creator. Just like Abram trusted and was considered righteous, if we trust the Messiah, we can also be considered righteous in Him. Again, not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, not because we paid for it, but because when he was nailed to the execution stake, he earned it. He paid for it for us. He made the way for us to leave our past mistakes behind. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So back to our parasha. In Genesis 15, verse 9, the Lord tells Abram to bring me a three-year-old young cow, a three-year-old she-goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young bird. So he brought all these to him and he cut them in half and put each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Later that evening, God used these animals as a sign of a covenant that he was making with Abram at this time. See, even though Abram believes in the Lord, even though he trusts what God is saying, he still can't understand, again, how is he going to provide an heir for me? Because at this point, he's convinced that Sarai is unable to conceive. So... Abram and Sarai decide that the Lord needs a little help here. We know he didn't. And that maybe his seed is supposed to be coming through Hagar. Now imagine this for a moment. You're watching a Hollywood movie. And at this point you're going to hear that ominous music playing like something dreadful is happening here. So Ishmael is born. And Genesis 16:12 tells us what kind of man he's going to be. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And away from all his brothers he will dwell. Does this really sound like the heir that God planned? Well, it wasn't. In chapter 17, we find the Lord changing Abram and Sarai's names. 
He says, no longer will your name be Abram, but your name will be Abraham, because I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. That was verse 5. In verse 15, he says also to Abram, Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her by the name Sarai. Rather, Sarah is her name. Now, the covenant that the Lord established between himself and Abraham and the descendants was characterized like this. In verse 7 of chapter 17, Yes, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant in order to be your God and your seed's God after you. It's a brit olam. An everlasting covenant. That means non-ending. That means it continues even today. Which some would argue that it ended at some point. Because Yeshua came and did away with all that. Ridiculous. That covenant is actually reestablished or restated in our Haftarah portion in Isaiah chapter 41. Verses 8 through 9 says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, I took hold of you from the ends of the earth and called from its uttermost parts and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you, not rejected you. In verse 9 of chapter 17 of Genesis, it says that God also said to Abraham, As for you... My covenant you must keep. You and your seed after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant that you must keep between me and you and your seed after you. All your males must be circumcised. You must be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and this will become the sign of the covenant between me and you. Also, your eight-day-olds must be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations including a house-born slave or a slave bought with money from a foreigner who is not of your seed. Your house-born slave and your purchased slave must sur- surely be circumcised. So my covenant will be in your flesh for, again, a brit olam, an everlasting covenant. So the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is a physical circumcision. What's the sign of the Brit Hadashah? The new covenant. It's a spiritual circumcision. It's referred to as the circumcision of the heart, which we read about actually in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked anymore. And in Deuteronomy 30, chapter 6, it says again, Also, Adonai, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Adonai, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. This spiritual circumcision really should cause us to stop being rebellious, stop being stiff-necked, so that we now will be allowed to say, We love Adonai, our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. See, the blessings of Abraham were not just fulfilled in numerous ways during his lifetime. 
The fulfillment continued and still continues through his greatest descendant, Messiah Yeshua. See, when we accept the gift that is God's Son, when we accept his sacrifice on that execution stake that he made for us, our hearts become circumcised. That's the sign of the Berit Chadashah, the new covenant. We read about that in Jeremiah 31, verses 30 through 33. Behold, days are coming. It is a declaration of Adonai. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, it is a declaration of Adonai. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. It is a declaration of Adonai. I will put my Torah within them. Yes, I will write it on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach his neighbor or each his brother, saying, No, Adonai, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. It is a declaration of Adonai. For I will forgive their iniquity, their sin I will remember no more. Just a side note on that. It has to do with the growing to maturity. You know, I'm one one of the first ones to tell you I have a hard time memorizing Scripture. But the whole point, when we do learn to memorize Scripture and we do put it on our hearts, again, it's there. It becomes something that's part of us. Each one of us absorbs it and becomes part of that. And then when others come and ask questions, those are the things that will come out of our hearts because he's imprinted them in us because they become who we are in him. We need to let God perform a spiritual surgery and circumcise our hearts. How does that happen? Through his word. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I won't sin, out, sin against you. But only he can do that. And only we, can, we have to allow him to do it. He's not going to force himself. Because he wants to be our God. We just need to respond to his Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit. See, he's not going to force himself on you. He's not going to force himself on me. He's calling and drawing through his Ruach. Because he wants us to love and worship him. Just like in the natural, you can't force anybody to love you or even like you for that matter. They have to make that choice themselves. We have to make that choice ourselves. To let God write his word in our hearts. To let him circumcise our hearts. In order for us to love God, we need to accept his way. The way that he has provided for the forgiveness of our sin. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some consider slowness. Rather, he is being patient toward you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's why when we, say, when we open our service and, and we pray, for, we say a prayer for the peace of Jerusalem, we pray for Israel and their protection and their safety and their salvation, 
I always include the enemies of Israel. God doesn't want them to perish either. They make the choice themselves, but doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for them. Just like we're supposed to pray for our leaders. We need even more so now in our nation after this election to continue to pray for our current president. That he has wisdom in fulfilling his duties to us, the nation, in the last weeks of his presidency. A lot of damage can be done. Don't get me wrong. He can do it. I don't think he will. But by the grace of God, we pray that he won't. So we have to continue to pray for him as well. And the incoming president and his administration, we need to pray that God touches them, directs them, leads them in their way that they're supposed to govern us. See, just like those who experienced a physical circumcision based on the Abrahamic covenant, they have a permanent physical and personal reminder of that covenant sign. So it's my prayer that we would all continually be reminded and aware of the circumcision of our hearts. That we not be cold, that we not be hard-hearted, that we not be rebellious. We should never allow our hearts to become so hardened that we rebel against the Lord. And if there are any areas in our hearts that have become hardened, I pray that they would be softened. That you'd allow, we would all allow the Lord to speak to us and renew us each and every day so that our circumcised hearts will begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and in our relationships. I pray that the Lord gives us shalom within those relationships, with our families, our neighbors, our congregation, in our homes, all around the world. I pray that his spirit will help us to mend and restore relationships that may have been fractured or broken. We all know people that have been in our lives that are no longer in our lives. We know some of the reasons. Sometimes we don't know why they decided they didn't want to be a part of our lives. But if it's within our power to mend those relationships, that's what we should do. We should go in with our hearts circumcised in the direction that the Lord leads us to try to mend those relationships. Sometimes that can be extremely difficult because in some cases, some of us have been hurt severely by some of those people whether it was co-workers, friends, neighbors, family members. It doesn't matter. We need to be the first to step up and say, whatever I've done, please forgive me. We need to have a softened heart, circumcised heart, representing the Lord. As Steve always prays, make us better ambassadors, Lord. We want to be recognized by others as being his ambassadors, his children. We don't want to go out and people wonder, are you, are you saved? Oh. Are, are, you, are you a Christian? 
Are you a believer in the Lord? If they have to ask, there's something about your actions or your countenance that's causing them to ask whether you are or not. There's some times when you see people and they tend to turn away from you. It's one of two things. Either you're exuding too much of the love of God or not enough of the love of God. We need to be, we need to be true. We need to be righteous before him as we walk among others. That they will see his righteousness through us and be drawn and want to know, what is it you have? That's when those verses can come back to you and you can start quoting them and saying, I have the love of God. I have the righteousness of God, but not because I deserved it, but because he loved me and gave his life for me and for you. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we do thank and bless you because it is you that sends us out to represent you as your ambassadors. Equip us. Circumcise our hearts. Put your word on our hearts that that would be the first thing out of our mouths when we speak to people. That we will represent you wherever we go. That we will represent you to our families, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, let us be witnesses and ambassadors for you. Let us always remember that you called Abraham your friend. I pray that we would all be able to hear you call us your friend. And we never want to hear anything but you calling us good and faithful servants. May your righteousness come upon us, directing us in everything that we do, representing you, so that we can say, you are our God and you are great and greatly to be praised. Great is our God. Great is our Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Yeshua's name.